Hello and welcome to another episode of Talking Terror. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on February 11th, 2019. Uh, it was at bright 5 p.m. London time. So obviously if anything that happened in the meantime after recording, we couldn't deal with it in today's recording. For today's episode, we're going to be focusing on this concept of de-radicalization, which you've heard so much about in series one and already again in series two. And if I was ask anyone around this area who to talk about de-radicalization, most people would name my guest today. I'm delighted to have on board Daniel Kohler, who's the director of the German Institute of Radicalization and De-Radicalization Studies. Uh, so, if you want to know anything about de-radicalization or radicalization, Daniel is one of the top people to go to. Before I get talking to Daniel, though, as a reminder, as always, if you or anyone you know wants to um, do an, a master's program in terrorism and counterterrorism studies, be sure to check out what we have on offer here, our new master's in Royal Holloway University of London in terrorism and counterterrorism studies, due to start in September 2019. So be sure to get your application in. And as with the rest of this season of Talking Terror, we're delighted to be brought uh, and sponsored, this episode to be brought to you and sponsored by IB Taurus. So if there's any books in relation to terrorism and counterterrorism, if there's any issues that you want to have a look at, uh, IB Taurus has so many uh, issues, uh, so many volumes um, related to these and other key issues you can look the works of Peter Newman, uh, Simon Mabin, and so many others. Anyway, on with today's podcast. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Terror. Thank you so much for having me, John. I'm really excited. So, how did you first get involved in radicalization and de-radicalization studies? What was it that drew you to it? Oh, that's a long story. So, I grew up in um, Brandenburg, German state, uh, and I, the high school I went to, basically, the, the main youth subculture that was present at the time in the late 90s, early 2000s, basically were neo-Nazi skinheads. That was the youth subculture I was growing around, and I, I really saw these people every day, and I interacted with them. They were at my school. They did their A-levels. Um, so I, I got to learn them as as human beings, I got to know them, and they were really, really interesting. The fact that they were both extremely radical and convinced of their uh, hardcore political values and ideas, and they were brutal. Uh, also, they were quite violent. But on the other other hand, they were quite different within their own group. They had they had group leaders that were more intellectual. They were more strategic thinking. They had more the the, the street soldier type. Uh, and this was the environment that was pretty normal in Germany and at that specific region at the time. So when I later on moved to study religious studies, political science and economics, um, I focused on terrorism and violent extremism. And it turned out that usually what, uh, at, at least at the time, what the university um, environment taught me about neo-Nazis, skinheads, violent extremists, by the book were really different from the human beings, the people that I got to know uh, back in the days of high school. And this experience repeated itself when I, after doing my degrees, went to practical working for an NGO dealing with neo-Nazis when they want to exit and move out the 
environment. So I got to know former neo-Nazis who had um, this process of radicalization, disengagement behind them, and they themselves were also completely different from the picture that was painted in the general public and in the academia and the academic environment. So I got really curious about the fact that what, what, what do we think about people who engage in violent extremism and terrorism on the one hand and the human beings that go in and come out of it on the other hand. So this kind of tension, these two worlds are basically where I've been living in the, for the last eight to ten years. It's really interesting that you keep on using the, the phrase human beings and to be able to, while it might seem an obvious turn of phrase to use, I think it's very important for us to, to understand this, that these individuals we're talking about are human beings like you and me and that their decisions uh, are influenced by the same or similar influences um, and that, it's the, that we need to be treating them in our analyses as human beings. Um, and is that, has that been a cornerstone of your research then? Absolutely. I think the fact that sometimes we tend to forget by, we tend to forget that there are human beings with all their problems, with all their complexities, with all their different identities that they're trying to cope with every day, uh, their cognitive dissonances, their developments, they change, they have certain ideas, they usually or mostly are rationally thinking individuals, and by, by looking at or by demonizing violent radicalization or violent extremism or terrorism as, as something pathological, as a disease, as a sickness, as something evil in its nature, uh, we tend to basically block out the human aspect of it. And I understand that for many societies or politically, for policymakers, and sometimes even for researchers, this might fulfill a certain function, a certain role that focus on what these people are doing, the criminal aspect of it, the, the victim aspect of it, or the damage that they're doing to our societies, or just by simply focusing on the, the academic, the research work, we sometimes need to blend out the human aspect of it. But when it comes to um, understanding the pathways in and out, and helping individuals to change to facilitate that exit process or disengagement process, we have to bring the human perspective back in. It does not work without it. You have to study and understand that person you are dealing with, his or her biography, the background, the tra trajectories in and out, the motivations, the push and pull factors, all that, plus the personality, the character, has to be taken into account for an effective disengagement or exit process or program. So in my perspective, researching violent radicalization, extremism, uh, as well as the de-radicalization aspect, on the one hand, and making it work practically, facilitating that process, building better programs, making them, or making them work to a, to a higher quality standard, does not work without the human face of it, the human complexity, the human side of it. It's simply not possible. Yeah, and with this in mind, like, and it's been said in many episodes to date, both in series one and already in series two, that this need for understanding the human factors means that we should be drawing on uh, interdisciplinary research. And one of the types of interdisciplinary research that you've drawn on for your research comes from, and when we're specifically talking about de-radicalization, comes from the research that of people leaving new religious movements. 
Um, why, where did you see the analogy here? Um, and what, did you, what could you draw from uh, the analysis of people leaving new religious movements? So I think that new religious movements are particularly interesting to the diversification and disengagement field because we're dealing with very close-knit communities of belief. So groups of people who are united by a very strong conviction, um, be it for the afterlife or be it a certain day and time, the apocalypse coming, also be, be it uh, regarding certain enemy pictures of the outsider. So the, the psychological, the way that new religious movement works, in my perspective, are very close to the, the collective identity, the collective psychology of um, violent extremist groups. Uh, on the one hand, there are, of course, um, differences as well uh, regarding the role of violence, regarding the enforcement structure of certain ideals and values within the groups, the way they politically behave, their political goals and ideals, what makes them violent extremists and, and terrorists in the end. So I, I do think that we need to learn from many other different fields, not just new religious movements, but also leading violent youth gangs, uh, organized crimes, for example, working with um, child soldiers or reintegration programs for uh, civil war combatants. So there are many, there's so many fields that we need to study and learn from um, to really pitch together what I would call the very young field of de-radicalization studies. Uh, when it comes to new religious movements, though, for me particularly, it's a role of ideology or belief that brings all these people together, that, that binds um, the collective identities together that, that creates this fused identity where individuals really dissolve their individual identity in the group collective. And this is what I see all the time in violent extremist environments or milieus that makes it quite similar. Also, the, the way they try to integrate um, all the social environments of their members or cut them off, really to have uh, some kind of boundary, which is not 100% uh, closed off. They need to recruit. They need to bring in new people. So they are interacting with the outside environment. And this is something extremely fascinating to me to see when and how the violent group or new religious movements decide to cut off from the outside environment, when to interact with it, where our opportunities for um, facilitating exchange, maybe breaking off or breaking up certain um, depluralized worldviews or certain black and white thinking might uh, might really be a chance for us, for, for the outsiders. So there are many psychological dynamics here that I, I see quite similar to the violent extremist environment. Oh, it's really fascinating. It's really, it's really a worthwhile area to have a look at. And for anyone who, who wants to, to look at this in more depth, obviously look at Daniel's research, but also go back to the episode with Neil Ferguson from uh, Series 1, where he talks about a paper he did with Eve Binks, which draws... Uh, on similar themes to this. But we've, we've mentioned the word de-radicalization de a number of times. What do you mean by de-radicalization, Daniel? So that, that's, of course, quite a contested uh, field uh, regarding the terminology and definitions, but I do think that mainly, or most scholars would agree that there is this differentiation between de-radicalization and disengagement. And uh, you've talked to the Pope of the de-radicalization research, if I can say so, John Horton, who introduced that differentiation, um, radicalization being or meaning the change in the psychological attraction, the commitment to a certain extremist ideology or group to the extent 
where the person is not uh, compelled to commit acts or a certain behavior for that group. So the ideological change, in short, while disengagement means the physical role change, so changing your outfit, your behavior, uh, obeying the law maybe, or stopping to commit violent acts, uh, maybe even leaving the group and breaking up your ties. But, and that's the main difference here, without necessarily giving up the cause, giving up the conviction to that specific ideology or belief system. And um, we, we know that individuals can have both. They, they can be part of a violent extremist group without believing in its cause, because they are used to it, they have their friends and families in the environment, but they don't believe in what the group is trying to achieve. Or people leave these environments, they change their behavior, and are still very much psychologically attracted or convinced of national socialism or jihadism, Islamic jihadism, for example. So we see different mixtures of these two types of, of definitions. And so do you believe that do you believe that de-radicalization should be what uh, states are aiming to achieve or or these pro exit programs should be aiming to achieve? Or is it is it a better a target to look to focus on disengagement initially? Here I would circle back to the human aspect. Um, when you have the human being in your center focus of this kind of work and research, uh, you know that there cannot be a general rule or a general recommendation like that. Just focus on radicalization or focus on disengagement simply doesn't work that way. You have to do the best, make the best out of what you what you what kind of person you are dealing with. So I would I would argue that every program, every de-radicalization or disengagement or exit program, whatever you want to call it, has should have the minimal goal of their client stopping to commit violent acts in the name of radical extremist ideology. So that should that should be the minimal basic goal. However, if you strive for complete de-radicalization, so complete ideological change for a certain person, or uh, are content with the fact that oh, the person who has been a violent extremist for 25 years, for example, committed multiple acts of crime, if that person says, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop acting violently, I'm going to stop criminal acts here, but I, I will... I will stay convinced of this this cause, for example, and you you say no, that's the best what we can achieve with this person. So the human center is key here, and also where it gets really messy is when we talk about de-radicalization and talk about ideology. The term ideology in itself is quite contested, but where do we where do we draw the line? Um, so, for example, neo-Nazi moving out the environment, the far right environment. Um, we would we would pretty sure have a mixture of different ideological fragments. For example, anti-Semitism, racism, uh, denying the Holocaust, maybe even uh, misogynia or um, homophobia, Islamophobia. So all that, all these things are part of his or her ideology, right? So we, if, if we start dismantling it piece by piece, we could say, well, anti-Semitism—that's a clear thing that, that we work on. Racism too, maybe even um, denying the Holocaust or any other aspect that comes to mind. But where do we stop if the person says, you know, um, I'm homophobic, I, I don't uh, I don't endorse homosexuality, but 
um, I don't hurt these people, uh, or I don't, I don't violate their rights, for example. So this person is entitled to have that opinion. So do we do we still work on that? I mean, from from a German perspective, for example, uh, half of the population, uh, certainly those voting for conservatives and the right parties, would be go would be target group for a deradicalization program. So the question is really, where do we draw the line? How do we understand what parts of an ideology is something that we work on, and how far do we work on it? And if you looked into my book, there's also another question of legitimacy, moral legitimacy in a Western context. A de-radicalization program works on the assumption of changing a human being's political or religious opinions to a certain, let's say, mainstream version or non non-extremist, or whatever we can call it, version. Yeah. While at the same time, our societies, our political cultures, are built on fundamental freedom of political opinion or religious opinion. So we always have to face the question, if these people are not doing anything illegal, why should a usually governmental-funded program try to change their political viewpoints that are usually protected by our constitutional rights? So this legitimacy problem of de-radicalization programs in Western countries is quite significant, something that practitioners and researchers should talk a lot more about, in my opinion, to find uh, ways around it or find solutions for it. I do have certain ideas for what we could do in this regard, but I, I really do think that it boils down to the understanding of ideology as a concept. And for many people, ideology is an abstract intellectual system, like theology, or like a, a complete political belief system that we're trying to change here. And I would argue that's not the point of a de-radicalization program. For me, ideology is, is a, a system of three things. Uh, a problem definition, a future solution, and um, a method to solve the problem. So a person might say, uh, my problem is that I think foreigners are taking away my jobs, and the German race, the Aryan race, is being erased and being destroyed and under attack. My solution to that might be to uh, attack uh, foreigners, drive them away, to racially purify my community. And my future vision would be uh, racially purified for Reich or whatever. So for that person, you can talk about, you can work on um, his, his perception of that threat. Uh, his solution, if there are alternative solutions to it, then violence, for example, could be education, could be social work, could be a new community where he, where he or she gets positive feedback or gets a new purpose and doesn't feel that threat, this essential threat any longer. Uh, you, you could work with a person on political ideas for a community, um, for organizing uh, integration, for example, or refugees, so there's so many ways to work on these three things ideologically wise without ever talking about a particular political or religious belief system, if that makes any sense. I think it's really, these are really important points to make. And you mentioned that section on moral legitimacy of de radicalization. I think when it comes to your monograph, when it comes to your book, that's one of the real strongest sections, I believe. It's something that really gets you thinking, it really gets the reader thinking. You talk about issues such as transparency, scientific evaluations, and human rights, um, 
when it comes to the moral legitimacy of de of de radicalization. You, as I say, you mentioned scientific evaluations there. Why why do you emphasize this, and what do you feel are the key points that we need to draw on when it comes to the scientific evaluation of de radicalization programs? really cannot overstress that. Um, my experience from the last couple of years has made me quite aware of problems, issues that can arise, arise out of the lack of standards, the lack of quality, and the lack of evaluation. So the first thing is that we need to separate these two fields. One is the, the research into radicalization, de-radicalization processes of individuals or groups, and the programs, on the other hand, that practically work in the CDE field, the countering violent extremism field, or the radicalization field all around the world. And I've seen the growing industry, the CDE industry, in, last, in, in the last couple of years, in many countries, but mostly in Western countries, where a lot of taxpayer money is poured into the CDE field. Um, for good reason, because governments, populations, policymakers were looking for alternatives to incarceration, to what I call kinetic approaches, so killing or arresting violent extremism and terrorists, um, so that there's a good reason for investing in countering violent extremism, deradicalization, disengagement. And I strongly believe in the, the value and the effects of well-created, well-designed programs. And what I, what I also see is that we currently have programs to be paid um, to working with potentially high-risk individuals, returnees from Syria, violent neo-Nazis, terrorists in prison, etc. So we, we, we really need to make sure that these programs, the people working with these particular clients, are trained to the best of our abilities, to the most cutting-edge state-of-the-art in our research field, terrorism studies, criminology, psychology, and we need to make sure that the programs are technically well-designed, well-built, to the best of our knowledge. Because if that's not the case, we are not wasting taxpayer monies. Uh, we're not just wasting taxpayer money, but also creating additional risks. Just think about it as um, a doctor having, and I'm, I'm sorry for using the pathology analogy here, uh, which I criticized at the beginning, but if we, if we see it as a doctor giving medicine to a certain person, um, and we use wrong treatment, the wrong cure, that person might even get more severe risks or might be inoculated against future treatment or help, especially, especially when you look into more ideologically based programs that try to debate the theological or ideological foundations of a certain a person's convictions, and if they fail, they have the wrong argument, that they have the wrong approach. They create psychological reactants. They enforce the belief into the violent extremist ideology on the other side. They even will discredit um, every future attempt to challenge that viewpoint or to work with these individuals. So what we are facing here are really uh, grave dangers if we are not looking very, very uh, strongly into the, the quality stance evaluation approach um, of, of in this field, and I've seen so many programs in the last couple of years that in no way are evidence-based, they don't have the theory of change, they have no training for their staff whatsoever, um, they have no concept, they have basically nothing that would make them 
that that would enable them to have any kind of effect in their, in their work. And for me, that's quite worrisome. Uh, we're really looking at quite dangerous individuals, quite risky processes. Some programs are, um, if, if they are working, for example, with, with high-risk individuals, and the environment of our countries, our, um, the law enforcement, intelligence community, might think that, okay, someone's taking care of the person, they're in good hands, they know what they're doing, um, and they will let us know if the person might turn out to be higher risk or might, there might be an immediate danger to our communities. So we are relying on these programs to understand what a high risk is and what a low risk is and what uh, kind of effects they have on the person. But if that's not the case, if, if they are not evaluated, if they are not based on evidence, um, at least the kind of evidence that we have in, in research, um, I get really scared that these programs are simply not fulfilling what we pay them for. So who should be doing these evaluations? I think there, there could be um, quite many people. I, I would start with academics. I mean, um, I, I would point to the research, for example, of Michael Williams and John Horton and Cor Braddock, uh, who have done light years of, of advancement in, in this field in the last couple of years alone. Um, especially Michael Williams with his evaluation research, um, or Cor Braddock with his research on narratives and persuasion. Um, and of course, John Horton's work. This is absolutely essential. So, um, academics who study any kind of social work, social processes, criminologists, psychologists, terrorism researchers, political scientists who study social programs that aim to have a, a social change, change in any kind of deviant behavior context, should or could uh, very well evaluate the radicalization disengagement problems. There are a couple of research projects going on right now in the European Union, for example, that look specifically look at evaluation of CV and utilization programs. There are a couple of toolkits out there, a couple of handbooks and concepts. What I do see is that there is, um, let's put it that way, many programs are scared in this field of of evaluation. They think they will be compared, they, they think they will lose their competitive advantage, uh, maybe even their donor base. Um, so evaluation in this field really has to enter um, the debate. Uh, and the only one who could push for that are the donors, the policymakers, usually the governments who are paying these programs. In most countries, it is taxpayer money that funds the CV and utilization field. So the donors, the stakeholders, are the ones who should demand high quality, high levels of evaluation. And then independent academics need to come in to provide the neutral third-party perspective um, that basically is an evaluation. But I see distrust, I see fear within the CVE field, at least in some European countries. Um, I, I see different culture here in the US, for example, in Canada, where there's a longer tradition of having independent academics going in and um, as a mandatory aspect, part of it, um, to evaluate these programs. But it's a very complex discussion. Really. How, how would we evaluate these programs? How would we evaluate the effect when we talk about de-radicalization, meaning how would we find out if a person is psychologically or ideologically truly changed or not? And, and what, what does that have something to do with 
the methods of the program. Um, so there are quite some quite tough nuts to crack uh, for the aviation research as well. Oh, completely, completely. And this actually links up to another point that you touch on in the moral legitimacy section, where you talk about transparency. So could you go in a bit more in depth about the importance of transparency here when it comes to DRAD programs? Well, I think that, first of all, DRAD and CV programs owe transparency to the communities, to the countries that finance them. Um, first of all, the taxpayer, um, the stakeholders that invest in these programs to provide any kind of service for risk mitigation or risk reduction when it comes to violent extremism and terrorism. So the, the financial aspect of it is quite important. Second, um, not just the, the potential clients of these programs, um, specifically violent extremists who want to leave the environment or prisoners or the families um, need to trust these programs, but also the communities where the clients of these programs are about to be reintegrated or rehabilitated too. So in the end, you're looking at a very long-term process that starts off with a program working, for example, with a violent, violent smooth in prison who has been convicted and sentenced for, let's say, um, an ideologically motivated murder. So the person comes out of prison eventually. The program works with the person, uh, might really do well on disengagement, de-radicalization, on um, taking responsibility and dissolving all the, the the beliefs that that led the person to the killing. But then again, wherever this person moves to find a new life, there will be a new community that needs to accept the person. So the long-term question of forgiveness, victim-perpetrator dialogue, restorative justice, all these aspects can only be really effectively tackled if you have community on board. They support that the whole social environment supports the efforts of the de-recalization or disengagement program. That really need buy-in. You need transparency. You need to show everyone how you work, uh, what you do, what your philosophies are. Um, and this is, I cannot, I cannot overstate this really. We need to know how these programs work to develop trust, to, to um, talk about issues like moral legitimacy, um, or quality standards evaluation, in my perspective, um, everything starts with transparency. If we, even as researchers, if we have no way of getting into these programs um, and studying what they're doing, then basically it's very hard for us to make any um, qualitative judgment or any kind of suggestions how to improve them. And this is really what I was saying before, research on radicalization, 95% or 99% uh, look at individuals or groups who leave out or who leave, um, who leave violent extremist environment, but have never been in touch with the radicalization program. And that research that looks at radicalization program is extremely scarce. So we are quite, quite in the early stages of understanding how these programs work and how these programs affect the radicalization process uh, at all. Yeah, no, it's, it, again, yet again, another key point that needs to be made and remade and re-emphasized to those, not just those carrying out the, the de-radicalization programs, but to also to those, to those funders as well. You've mentioned earlier on about the specific effects, effects that de-radicalization programs can have, not just on the individual themselves, but on 
uh, the organisation as well, the, the, the terrorist group, the militant group. Uh, could you go a bit more in depth about that? You, within your book, you talk about the interruption of group hierarchies, the causing of internal risk, and learning about recruitment and radicalization processes. So could you, for the listeners, could you go into a bit more depth about that? Sure. So in my perspective, there are certain effects, a, let's say, one individual exit from a violent extremist or terrorist group has on the group, on the collective. Um, first of all, it creates organizational costs for that specific group. Usually, uh, when a certain person has been socialized into a certain position within the violent extremist group, uh, they take away certain knowledge, contacts, maybe technical knowledge and skills. They take with them when they leave the environment. And as you know, uh, violent extremism, terrorism, is, is usually a field where they, they typically have problems finding high-skilled high skilled individuals and personnel. Um, it's not the most attractive choice, career choice. Um, so they, are need, they need to fill these holes that have been created by the person leaving. They need to find someone, train someone back into that position. Uh, usually an exit also creates some internal infighting, um, power struggles within the group. Uh, if the, succession, the line of succession is not completely clear, um, so we are creating these costs, these organization costs for that group. And from Germany, there are a couple of well-studied examples where even individual access from small neo-Nazi groups have created the complete collapse of that specific group. If, for example, the person who left had such an essential, fundamental role within the organization that it simply was not able to cope with the organizational costs without that specific person. So that can be a very significant effect, a counter-terrorism effect of de-radicalization, to be honest. And the second thing is that uh, we create a, a need, a, we force the group to continuously explain themselves to the remaining members. If you think about the violent extremism group again, uh, the similarities to the new religious movement, if they continuously tell themselves, we are doing what we're doing because we're completely convinced that this is 100% truth, the perfect solution to all our problems, and we are sure this ideology is it. And if a long-term member or a comrade you have, you have fought with, you have experienced a lot of bad things together with uh, beliefs and says, no, this is wrong, I've, I've completely messed up my life, and this has nothing to do with what I wanted to achieve all these years, um, this creates a lot of questions within the minds of the remaining members, right? Create the question, oh, what happened here? Is, are we truly the, the truthful, the perfect group following the perfect path, the best ideology? Is this really, um, is this really what, what it's all about? Or is the person who just left, my best friend from years of struggling, is he right? Uh, so is there something else? Is this, are we wrong? Uh, so you're creating a, an internal crisis of legitimacy for the group. And usually what happens is that the group leadership denounces the, the defectors. They say he, he was a spy, he's corrupt, he's a pedophile, a drug addict, a criminal. So they will throw everything they have at the person, right? And just a normal protective mechanism for violent extremists and terrorist groups. Um, but they cannot answer the question why this arguably highly defective individual went up to a certain rank, 
was not detected as defective. All these years, he or she was part of a group. They were all friends. They were all comrades. And no one, and not even the, the perfect ideology, was able to cure him or her from all these, um, all this, all this deviant behavior. So questions really remain. And what we do with deradicalization, disengagement, we constantly force the group to explain itself uh, and to make excuses and to we really bring out all the negative aspects of group membership to the group itself. Uh, so therefore, we, we're kind of preventing or avoiding the group settling down and creating a legacy and creating a tradition of, of success and spawning off and basically saying, you know, we've been fighting for 40 years and here are our, here's our list of successes and this is what we've achieved, accomplished. We have a long line of succession of our leaders and unbroken line, for example, and this would be much more dangerous uh, than having a group that constantly talks about their own failure their own members. Um, and thirdly, we learn a great deal about um, radicalization, recruitment processes through the eyes of the of the farmers, um, which is extremely important because it provides us with the, the highway into the mindset, into the thinking, into the group processes, how these environments change, and they do change all the time. They change the style, they change the recruitment themes. They change their main topics. They even change their own ideology constantly um, and adapt to to the environment. And uh, we learn much quicker about the internal workings of these environments through the eyes of those who have been there. Do we also see situations where the terrorist groups themselves are taking advantage of the de-radicalization program, taking advantage in a way to relieve themselves of members that they no longer, no longer wants, no longer need. You know, some groups have claimed that they do that. In Germany, some neo-Nazi groups have said, well, uh, quote-unquote, you're just taking out the trash for us. Um, and you help us to really having, having only the, the purest, the best of the best within our group. Now, having seen many, or having studied German neo-Nazi groups, I'm not convinced that they have the best of the best left, um, to be honest. So I would say that no violent extremist or terrorist group can credibly make the, the argument of the point that, well, yeah, we can, we don't really need these people. We have enough. We have enough high-skilled, high-potentials in our group, and we don't need these, these members. No, that's simply not true. They need everyone that they can get. Uh, they have many jobs that need to be done, and simply I don't buy the fact that um, when we look at certain careers of certain formers, we have high-ranking positions that have been doing um, terrorist attacks or significant acts of violence for their own groups out of their conviction. Um, no, I simply don't think that this holds true. For certain aspects, I think this is a protective mechanism to to get away or to get around this, um, this question of, well, obviously, not everyone uh, is convinced 100% of the group and the group does not work. The ideology does not work 100% for everyone. Um, and they are trying to, to find a way to, to, to handle that and to work with that. But I, I don't think that's really, really convincing. Yeah, it's really a narrative there to legitimize themselves within the, within the, these situations and to say, oh, we're still strong and we're actually stronger than ever as well. It's a 
part part of the recruitment narrative, I suppose. What what we see oftentimes in uh, sort of the history of terrorism studies is, are typologies of terrorist groups. However, you also put forward a typology typologies of de-radicalization programs. Could you outline what uh, the typologies are? After a couple of years in this field, I think that uh, we can really say goodbye to the notion that there is the silver bullet solution of the um, perfect radicalizationist engagement program. First of all, there's a vast difference culturally in how we approach radicalization disengagement. The Western context, for example, and the Middle East and North African context or Southeast Asian context, where there's a completely different philosophy behind de-radicalization Generally, I would say, as a, as a minimum start for a typology of de-radicalization program, I think there are three main characteristics. The first one is, is it governmental or non-governmental. Second, is it active or passive in its contact approach, meaning if the program is contacted by the client seeking help, or is the program actively reaching out to the potential client, persuading the person to participate in um, the de-radicalization program. And thirdly, is it mainly focusing on the role of the ideology or not? Um, there are, for example, the Saudi Arabian de-radicalization program, which in its origin is highly focused on the theological basis or the theological debate of the Salafi Jihadi ideology or the, the people, the terrorist prisoners, that actually wanted to theologically debate out of terrorism. And some Western... Uh, more Western-based um, programs years ago were starting off from the exact opposite. They would actually exclude or ignore any ideological debate and just focus on the disengagement aspects, finding a new job, drug treatment, tattoo removal, um, talking about maybe family issues, etc. But they would avoid talking about ideology um, to, to avoid getting into that moral legitimacy question. And I think in recent years, these programs have grown or they have intermixed more. So the Saudi Arabian program has introduced more classic um, social work components, psychological components, job training components, while most most Western programs have, have started to talk about ideology and theology more. So I do see kind of a, a general tendency to include certain, um, certain components here. But yeah, I mean, these three components are what I think make up for the six, seven, eight main types of de-radicalization programs around the world. So you have governmental programs that reach out or are passive. You have non-governmental programs that wait to be contacted, the classical exit NGO in the Western context, for example. Um, you have programs that talk about ideology that do not talk about ideology. So we need to understand that this field is extremely diverse, um, has many different approaches, philosophies behind it, you can see also this has an effect on evaluation and quality standards and um, what we expect in terms of performance from these programs. Just making a simple difference between a passive program that works with, with persons who reach out and ask for help, so they have a motivation, they have a cognitive opening, want someone to help them. Naturally, this program should have a higher rate of success or higher rate of, um, let's say, successfully carried through counseling than a program who tries to convince someone to leave terrorism behind. Naturally, they need to create a cognitive opening in the first place. 
and you know how, diff how difficult that is. So such a program should have naturally a higher rate of, um, of, of people not going through the program or rejecting the approach um, or simply contact who do not lead to a counseling case in, in, in a later time. So I think that we need to study much more in detail the different characteristics and aspects of these programs. And I've made in my book, I've started um, to look at the different methods that we use, the five pillars, biological, psychological, social work, education, and creative arts and sports, um, by simply starting to map what is it they are doing in the first place so that we can start understanding how these different methods, these different approaches behave in different program types for different target groups. So what I'm saying is that in addition to the directorization research that's out there, which is mostly looking at individual um, psychological processes out of terrorism, we really need to understand the organizational logic, the effect, the mechanisms, the internal mechanisms, the characteristics of these radicalization programs. And are we seeing these uh, de-radicalization programs also consider the role that an individual's family will play and the effects that their individual engagement with these terrorist groups can have on, on their family, both during their engagement as well as during their, their de-radicalization? I'd say that most respectable programs, the most serious program would, of course, include the role of the family in the social environment of their clients as a positive or negative factor in the counseling. Um, that being said, there was also kind of an innovation in recent years. Around 2011-12, it started in some European countries, in Germany, for example, the development of specific family counseling, CBE family counseling programs that were mainly focusing on the family, the social active environment of a potentially radicalizing individual. So in, in recent years, I've seen that participated in that development as well. I've seen programs coming up that in addition to the individual direct program who includes the family of their clients, family counseling programs mainly focus, focus on the, the issues, the problems, the mechanisms within a family context, understanding the family as an environment, social environment in itself, it might have positive and negative influences on the radicalizing individual. So these programs typically start working long before the individual that might be radicalizing has even acknowledged the fact that he or she wants to, to move out the environment or has a problem. So what these family counseling programs are doing is they, they try to help the, the family connect to third-party providers to understand the push and pull factors within their environment and to become a partner in a prevention process to prevent a further radicalization process, to slow it down, to stop it ideally, in the best of cases, induce an individual de-radicalization disengagement process. So this is the separate type of CBO de-radicalization problems that has been created in the last couple of years. But again, I'd say that most serious programs would never leave out the family or the social perspective of their clients. I, I, it, I think that's 
hugely important and it's really good to, to hear about that kind of that kind of work that's going on you mentioned just before i asked that question about the practical methods uh, of de-radicalization programs you talk about mentoring vocational training psychological counseling educational methods but you also mentioned about sports and creative arts and that would be something that a lot of our listeners might be going oh that's interesting well, i want to know more about that so what more can you tell us about that about how sports and creative arts have been used within these uh, these programs? Well, of course, the first thing is that you want to um, when you want to provide a alternative social environment or alternative lifestyle for your client, for your person who moves out of violent shooting. Usually when they leave that environment behind, which tends to govern or dictate every aspect of your life, from the food you eat, from the music you listen to, from the people you associate with, from what you do from day in and day out, um, you, they fall into a black hole. When all that is taken away and, and questioned and as part of something bad or problem, problematic, you need to fill that hole, you need to fill that quickly with a new purpose, uh, something to do, something to strive for. So sports is a very good way to feel yourself again, uh, for your client to provide, first of all, a new social environment, new friends, a new way to get positive feedback, to feel that you can take charge of your life, yourself, to train, to get better in something, without the ideology, without your former peers. Uh, you get in touch with new persons who provide positive feedback to you. You're basically, you're basically providing a new network, plus, um, of course, Sports help fulfill your day. Uh, gives you a structure. It gives you to. It gives you help to um, to rearrange your schedule, be it uh, regarding nutrition or sleep. Um, you are exhausted because you have trained hard, so you have uh, a positive feeling of having done something with your day. Um, all these aspects psychologically are very important to have in that phase immediately after leaving a group where you fall into the black hole. Um, Second is that when, when you bring in creative arts, the idea, the, the theory behind it is that uh, violent extremist ideologies are based on collective social identities, that they usually do not cope well with strong individual thinkers. They want people who give themselves up for the cause and for the group. Um, so what these programs are trying to do here is to strengthen the individual identity again after the phase of basically having lost that in the violent environment. So through creative arts, through sports, these, these people, the clients, are learning again to express themselves, to express their feelings, their ideas, to basically learn who they are as human beings, as individual human beings. And the theory goes that if we strengthen that sense of individuality, individual identity, that creates a um, basically some kind of inoculation or um, safety against any kind of belief system that wants to take that away from them again. Um, so that's the philosophy, and that's the idea behind it. And again, some programs do it because they think that might happen, that might be the case, but we need to find out, we need to really evaluate if that kind of method tool has that kind of effect in the end. Um, but yeah, I mean, also what we're doing through creative arts and sports in the field is to 
slightly um, bring them or make them, give them the perception or the feeling that certain aspects of the ideology really were not correct. I'll give an example, um, here in Germany some programs, martial arts, um, martial arts-based programs work with young jihadis, um, and there's this famous picture of, within a Salafi jihadi environment, that the true man has a beard, right? The true fighter has to have a beard, otherwise he's not a man. Um, now, when you get, when you bring a young teenage boy who believes in that, who believes in that heroism, the fighter ideal of the Salafi jihadi community, growing his beard, you bring him in touch with a martial artist, strong, huge, well-trained man, um, has not a beard, has no beard. Why? Because in, in martial arts, the beard is really not that pragmatic, it's not effective because you can be pulled on it, um, it, it's unhygienic, it's not something that as a, as a true fighter in the martial arts context you want to have. But if you have a trainer who is a Muslim, who is well-respected, who has hundreds of black belts, um, and this young boy cannot deny the fact that this person is in every other aspect an idol to him, or Romo, he's Muslim, he's man, he's strong, he's a fighter, he's honorable, but he doesn't have a beard. So how can that go along? How can that go along with the ideology, the belief system that he has been taught previously. So we are sitting, we're using creative arts and sports basically as a chance to bring people in touch with other people and strengthen that sense of plurality, of belonging, of positive feedback, social community, uh, self-efficacy, all these very, very important things we can get out of creative arts and sports. So up to now, while drawing on examples from Germany, as you've done there and elsewhere, we've been most of the time talking in general about de-radicalization, de-radicalization programs. And with the understanding in place that obviously there has to be, we have to consider the individual clients in regards to these de-radicalization programs to see what would be best for them, that there are different needs for different individuals. But if you could draw on an example for, say, what the gold standard of a de-radicalization program will be, what would you hold up? What do you think, and underneath this question is this age-old problem that we've discussed in many podcasts of, well, how do we measure success? And that's been um, mentioned here already as well. But what do you feel might be some of the best examples of de-radicalization programs that, that we can learn a lot from? That's really tough question because I can, of course, only speak about those programs that I've had any kind of insight or any kind of contact with. Um, naturally, I've, I've read a lot about other programs and from researchers who have studied the programs. I've been involved in building, designing, training some programs. So, that, yeah, I mean, the in, in the U.S., for example, the the program that I've helped to set up in Minneapolis in the probation and pretrial offices, office there, um, has for me really broken down some very significant barriers in the U.S. context. It was the first ever in the U.S. judicial context to even consider something like de-radicalization or disengagement to providing training for probation officers to have any kind of access to resources to working with violent offenders that they had never had before. So it was a game changer in the U.S. context. And um, in itself, the approach, the 
that was pushed forward by, I'd say, revolutionary thinking federal judges and at the time the state attorneys uh, and the Luger and others was absolutely innovative, creative and fascinating. So they used every tool they had to really build something great um, at the time when it started. Then I would argue the, the Danish Aarhus project, which is well known internationally, well, well reported on, has indeed created a very holistic approach. It's extremely well tied into the local community. It is built on long decades of cooperation between the police, the social services, and the schools. So it's, it's perfectly embedded, perfectly built into what, is, what was already existing in, in, the, in the community of Aarhus at the time. I also argued the, the Dutch program, family counseling program, and the Dutch exit program that have been created three, about three years ago. Um, and I've, I've witnessed it uh, from, from the inside. Also extremely um, respectable from my perspective because they really took the time to design it. They were not um, driven by the policy imperative to quickly add something, add a component to any existing program, uh, if it fits or not, but simply to show that they're doing something. No, the Dutch approach was to design a completely new program and to answer legal questions, political questions, psychological questions, methods questions, before they actually start the program. And I was, I was lucky enough to be part of it, um, to train staff and to help um, discuss their methodological issues and questions they have. So I, I could see that how much, how much resources in, in terms of time and thinking and consideration went into the program. So that was fascinating to see that they actually took the time and took the, the resources to design something from scratch that they would, that they believe strongly in to have a program. Um, and I think it has been evaluated. There was one evaluation study that I saw that was quite positive. Uh, so I, I, would, I would name these three programs as, as good examples. Oh, these these are, are all really good programs and ones well worth having a look at. But Daniel, we're close to the hour mark and I've taken up a lot of your time and I know that our listeners have gotten so much from this. But just to finish up, one of the points that you make quite strongly within your writing is that the practical has outpaced the theoretical. That the theoretical understanding of de-radicalization uh, is behind uh, the practical necessities of the de-radicalization programs, is behind the practical implementation of these programs. So to finish up with, what advice would you give to academics who want to um, who want to, to research this area, who, who feel a need to, uh, who feel, who are searching for a question to ask or research to do uh, within this area, what advice would you give? I'd say get in touch with those researchers who are currently out there um, studying the radicalization process and programs. Look into the outlets that are there um, in terms of political violence, studies in conflict terrorism, my journal, JD Journal of Deradicalization, or Perspectives on Terrorism. So look at what has been, what's been published, where the key questions are currently, 
And I would also advise looking for small, new, younger initiatives and programs who are currently in the process of establishing themselves in the CBD and utilization field. They don't have um, they don't have a lot of standing to lose if you work with them in terms of the evaluation. So they are not yet that protective of their uh, methods and approaches. At least in Germany and Western Europe, I've seen that the smaller, new level initiatives are much more open um, to engage with researchers who can provide them with um, a learning experience to get more effective, to have some kind of connection to the um, academia and the research world. Um, and in the end, I can really recommend for all the researchers, get involved yourself. Um, do, do an internship, offer your time, uh, your spare time, your voluntary service to CV, to deradicalization programs that you trust, that you think are, are, are worth it, because as a researcher, there's nothing that, that, that you will benefit more from by actually getting to know these persons, working in this environment, tackling the practical questions every day that researchers usually don't know about, what these programs are doing, how they're working, what they need to answer first before they can think of evaluation or new process models or theory of change, if you really are in there in the day-to-day -day operations. And by simply offering uh, voluntary services, be it you know, research services, or literature review, or translation services, or even social work, as, as a researcher, you can do social work for a CVE community project, uh, and you will learn a great deal about your own field, about these programs, and it will help to improve. Daniel, that's, I feel that's a great way to finish up. So thank you so much for being on uh, today's episode of Talking Terror. I know I've learned a lot from, from it, and I'm sure our listeners have. If you want to read more about Daniel's uh, research on de-radicalization, I highly recommend his book, Understanding De-radicalization Methods, Tools, and Programs for Countering Violent Extremism. But Daniel's work isn't just about de-radicalization. De He's an expert in right-wing terrorism as well. So if you want to find out more about that research, have a look at Right-Wing Terrorism in the 21st Century, The National Socialist Underground, and the History uh, of Terror from, far, from the Far Right in Germany. As Daniel said, have a look at his journal, Journal of De-Radicalization. Go to the, to the website for the German Institute on Radicalization and De-Radicalization, GIRDS.org, or follow them at GIRD underscore S. Obviously, don't just follow Daniel on Twitter. Be sure to follow us on Twitter as well. We can be followed on at Terror underscore podcast. And of course, if you want to... Uh, do a master's in terrorism and counterterrorism studies, learn about issues like de-radicalization and, and others, why not check out the, the master's program we're offering here at Royal Holloway University of London starting in September 2019. It's an MSc in terrorism and counterterrorism studies. Thank you, Daniel, and thank you to our sponsors, IB Taurus, again, uh, for, for sponsoring today's podcast and this series. Be sure to check out uh, all the resources that IB Taurus have to offer in terrorism studies and beyond. Some great books out there. So, looking forward to, talk to talking to you all next week where I'm going to have another excellent guest on board. But until then, goodbye.